0: So I'd like to begin tonight and uh, <clears throat> by telling you a story about Billy Mills. How many of you have heard of Billy Mills or know who I'm talking about? One, two, yeah, I find this is sort of true whenever I mention his name. Not too many people know about him, but I have been very uh, inspired myself to learn about him. He is uh, a Native American, an Ogallala Sioux. He grew up on the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota. In February of this year, he's now must be about my age. In February of this year, he, uh, I'm not telling you what that is, but... (laughs) (laughs) But you can imagine, so... Uh, In February of this year, he received the Presidential Citizens Medal from President Obama at a White House ceremony for his important work in an organization he founded called Running Strong, which is for American Indian youth to develop their self-esteem and their sense of empowerment. But back in 1964, he was a runner and he got placed on the Olympic team and he uh in 1964 surprised everybody by winning a gold medal in the 10, 10k race in uh in Japan and it, it he because of the racism of the time his picture was never put in the paper it's hard to believe that but it wasn't like you know, accepted as, uh, he wasn't accepted as an American hero. So he, I can only surmise from that, that what I'm about to read you comes from his experience in life of some difficulty. So this is what he wrote. He said, I asked for fame so others would know me. I was given obscurity that I might know myself. I asked for a person to love that I might never be alone. I was given a life of a hermit that I might know and learn to accept myself. I asked for power that I might achieve. I was given weakness that I might learn to obey. I asked for health that I might lead a long life. I was given infirmity that I might appreciate each minute. I asked to live happily that I might enjoy life. I was given life that I might live happily. I received nothing I asked for, yet all my wishes came true. I like this because it speaks to a a paradox at the heart of our practice, which we have been kind of skirting and and exploring a little bit, and I want to go more into it tonight. The other night, Howie talked about uh, the Four Noble Truths and the, the truth of suffering and the Second Noble Truth, that the cause of our suffering is this mind that is craving, that is holding on, that is insisting on having things its way, wanting things to be different. So this, this understanding of the wanting mind is very much part of what we are exploring here. And it may occur to you in this exploration that you're being asked to look at something that is seems so... Uh, obvious, like, of course, I want to get what I want. I mean thats isn't that what life is about? And in our culture, when we don't get what we want, what do we think? Well, we think i failed i I'm not good enough, or I'm at something I did wrong, or I, I don't have what it takes, and so we blame ourselves or we blame others or some situation. And this is very much the common response in the conventional world. So the Buddha saw all this and he described uh, the world of the separate self as the world that is composed of what he called the, the, the worldly winds. The values and attitudes of the conventional world he described as the worldly winds there are four pairs of ever-changing opposites, pleasure and pain, pride and shame, success and failure, praise and blame. Now, we've all touched these, right? We know these experiences. And of course, quite naturally, we try to have the praise, the pleasure, the pride, the success. That's, that's what what we consider to be uh, what we're supposed to be about in this world. And those are not bad things to want, but do they bring us the happiness and satisfaction that we imagine will come when we find those things? Are they reliable sources of happiness and contentment? So in the Buddhist literature you will find many descriptions of this uh cycle of pursuing these qualities of pleasure and pride and success and and you will see that this is called samsara this this endless seeking i think how alluded to it this endless seeking of of uh, a foothold in in some way of of feeling that we are uh not failing at life, that we are succeeding. But as I said, in the Buddhist literature, we, we find many um, uh, cautionary writing, much cautionary writing about how this is a, a, a futile pursuit. So here is one of, one of, this is written by a Tibetan lama named Garchan Rinpoche. He said, we are not liberated because we are attached to samsara, because we think that we can actually find true happiness by finding gratification for our senses. We can understand rather easily that hatred is the cause of suffering and we are ready to give up this negative emotion. It is much more difficult for us to realize that the actual cause of still wandering in samsara is our mistaken belief that we will, in the end, find some happiness here. It is thus more difficult to recognize our desire for samsaric bliss. We are not free from suffering because we can't let go of it. But no matter how hard we try, even if we do get what we were striving for, it will not last. When we die, we are forced to let it all go. What will stay, however, are the negative imprints, the karmas that we created in order to obtain such worldly success." So this is, this is like, wow, that's a pretty strong statement, you know, that, that it's a futile pursuit. And so this is part of what we explore when we come to practice, this relationship to uh, the worldly values that we live in, live within, and how we find in practice what are the values that are considered worth cultivating, worth pursuing. I'd like to read something written many centuries ago by a Buddhist scholar named Ashpagosha called Living in the World. He said, The Dharma of the Buddha does not require a person to go into homelessness or to resign from the world unless he or she feels called upon to do so. But the Dharma of the Buddha does require every person to free themselves from the illusion of self, to cleanse one's heart, to give up one's thirst for pleasure, and lead a life of righteousness. And whatever people do, if they engage in life without cherishing envy or hatred, and if they live in the world not a life of self, but a life of truth, then surely joy, peace, and bliss will dwell in their minds. Not a life of self, the life that says, I want, I must have, I deserve, I'm entitled. Not that life, but a life of truth. And that is very much the orientation of our practice here, that we are pursuing truth because it is what Is liberating. It is what frees us from the illusory illusory pursuits in this world. And so over time, what I see, and I've seen it in my life and in the lives of many, many, many practitioners, we kind of Instead of being caught in the gravitational field of of the worldly values of pursued, pursuing worldly success, we start gravitating more to the wor- the values that are present in the in the tradition the the values of wisdom and compassion of of truth of living with sila of of living a life that is dedicated to the awakening of wholesome qualities in each of us. And somehow, to get back to the paradox that Billy Mills spoke about, it is precisely in this surrender or in this relinquishing of our insistent demand on what we want that this new way of being begins to reveal itself the beautiful qualities of consciousness begin to come forth. Qualities such as humility. It's a very humbling experience sometimes to not get what you want, isn't it? We think, may think of it as failure, but somewhere in there, there's also maybe some learning about humility. There's some learning about patience, about acceptance about being open to what we don't know. And also this quality of compassion, this quality of open-heartedness, seeing that uh, we do not stand separate from the rest of humanity, but that we are all in this together. And what could our response be to our dilemma, our, our frustration, our suffering, but compassion. That is what joins us as humans, this capacity to uh, develop compassion. So this is the paradox. As Anne said about the hindrances, the way out of our suffering is not by achieving something great in the world. But actually, meeting our suffering, going through what is needed to uh, meet ourselves with this understanding, with this wise and compassionate awareness. And it is not obvious. There's a poem by Rumi called Fire and Water: a fire on the left, a lovely stream on the right. One group walks towards the fire, into the fire, another toward the sweet flowing water. No one knows which are blessed and which are not. Whoever walks into the fire appears suddenly in the stream. A head goes under the water's surface and pokes out of the fire. Most people guard against going into the fire and so end up in it. Those who love the water of pleasure and make it their devotion are cheated by this reversal. The trickery goes further. The voice in the fire tells the truth, saying, I am not fire, I am fountainhead. Come into me and don't mind the sparks. If you are a friend of God, fire is your water. You should wish to have a hundred thousand sets of moth wings so you could so you could burn them away, one set at night, set a night. The moth sees light and goes into the fire. You should see fire and go toward light. Fire is world-consuming, water world-protecting. Somehow each gives the appearance of the other. To these eyes you have now, what looks like water burns. What looks like fire is a great relief to be inside. What a paradox. When we meet the fire of our own suffering and we're really there, there's a sense of relief that comes. How can that be? But it's true. Thich Nhat Hanh said, do not close your eyes before suffering. Find ways to be with those who are suffering by all means, including personal contact, visits, images, sound. By such means, awaken yourself and others to the reality of suffering in the world. So you've had quite a taste in this week of practice of your own uh, inner world of suffering. Many of you have spoken about the difficulties of being with yourself in this way. So, what is needed in our practice uh, of awareness is this tender heartedness towards ourselves, this quality of what we call in this tradition loving kindness and compassion, or karuna. These qualities are qualities of love. Metta, M E T T A, is the quality of um, warm-hearted friendliness towards yourself and all beings. It's the quality of um, love and non-preferential treatment of people. So there's just this love of whatever comes into view. It is not based on achievement or specialness, but just love for the sake of love. And so we offer practices of loving kindness at Spirit Rock. We offer metta retreats where you can learn in greater detail than we have been able to provide uh, how to, to cultivate this quality of unconditional love in yourself. the quality of compassion is a little bit different in that it is love in response to suffering. Wherever there is suffering, compassion will arise. You can see this quite commonly, almost anywhere on the news when you hear about some disastrous event. You will also be aware that there are many people rushing in to help, just quite naturally that these crises or suffering very naturally arouses in people the desire to help. That is compassion in action. When we practice with metta and compassion, we start where it's easiest. So there are different categories of um, beings that we practice with. If you're doing the loving-kindness practice, you might start with someone that it is easy to love, who you feel loved by and so it is easy to extend to them your good wishes if you and then and then from that you 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 go to a good friend somebody who there's also a nice feeling about maybe a little more complicated but still a good feeling about you send loving kindness to yourself and then you practice sending loving kindness to what is called a neutral person a person about whom you have neither strong Uh, feelings of of love nor strong feelings of aversion. They're truly kind of somebody that you might see every day but not really notice. You don't have much feeling about them. You practice with the neutral person. And then finally, we are instructed to practice with what is called the difficult person. But that only comes after you've uh, started with the ones that are more easy. Sometimes people want to immediately send loving kindness to their most difficult person in their life. And it, 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 it you don't have enough muscle. You know, it's like going to the gym, you have to build the the meta muscle in order to be able to really genuinely send somebody you're having difficulty with loving kindness. So that is kind of the structure of these practices. With the compassion practice, you start with somebody who is suffering, who naturally arouses in you that feeling of wishing them to be free of suffering. It is interesting that in the neuroscience, um, they're discovering a phenomenon in the brain that some of you I know know about, uh others do not it's called it's called the mirror neurons have you heard of the mirror neurons they are little neurons in the brain that uh when when they they've shown this even in small children and babies when when a baby or a small child is shown a picture of somebody suffering their mirror neurons light up and they it's it's the movement of empathy of feeling the suffering of, of another being. So we can't help it. We can't help but be compassionate because these mirror neurons are, are set up in just that way to uh, provoke in us a feeling of empathy towards whoever is suffering. You see a puppy, you see a baby, you see an old person suffering, and you immediately have this response That's not all of compassion. Compassion also has a sense of action in it, of actually responding in a more active way. But it is the the beginning of that. One time I heard a lecture by the great Buddhist scholar Robert Thurman. He's a fabulous speaker and very energized person and he was talking about compassion and he said look at your hands so i invite you all just look at your hands look at these hands he said these hands are not claws they're not weapons they're not meant to kill and maim and you know strangle other people these 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 hands he said are built for what for love for for holding for cooperating for making things for offering comfort to others that's what these human hands are about he said that's evidence enough of our compassionate nature it's in us to 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 have that in us it's I, it's so simple you know you could easily overlook it so the Buddha said over and over again that he taught one thing and one thing only, and that is suffering and the end of suffering. He said, it's not so much about what I teach, is not so much about what is good and what is bad or what is right and what is wrong. He said, the main thing I teach is suffering and how to bring that suffering to an end. So compassion is that response that wishes to alleviate suffering in whatever way it can. We have a, uh, another kind of knee-jerk response. I don't know what to attribute it to in the brain, but we do also have a, a less helpful uh, response in in to suffering, which is that when we are suffering, we tend to think, "I'm the only one. It's my fault. What's wrong with me?" And so we do this very cruel kind of thing to ourselves, where we make a big story often about you know what's wrong with me and my suffering. So this is also something that we have to kind of uh, look at for ourselves and see that all humans, without exception, have suffering in their lives. Whether it's one kind of suffering or another, everybody has a certain burden to bear. And that we also have to include in our compassion this understanding that Nobody is here with a with a free ride, free of suffering. One area of suffering the Buddha spoke about quite a bit is that we suffer because things don't last. That we we ha- we have uh, lives in which we can't hold on to that which we love. Uh, maybe the person leaves or dies or something occurs that separates you, or we, we get stuck with, with people or things that we don't like, and, and we can't control impermanence. We can't control the changing, unreliable, undependable conditions of our lives. Just when we think we've got it together, something may occur, and, and we see it's uncontrollable. So in our culture, when when we when this happens again, this is a call for compassion, to see that we're all in this together, and that our attitude towards impermanence even can be one of uh, helping us to feel more compassion. In the Japanese uh, tea ceremony, they have these beautiful tea bowls. I'm, some of you may have been in a have anybody been in a Japanese tea ceremony yeah a few of you, yeah, so these beautiful bowls that are usually handmade and very bea- delicately handled because the the tea ceremony is a mindfulness practice really of you know uh, preparing tea and uh Making the tea and so the, and then serving the tea to everyone. so they're, they're very del- they're very delicately handled. but once in a while one of these tea bowls gets broken. And if it does get broken, here's what happens. instead of throwing it out, as we might do in our Western culture, uh, we, they have this way of as much as possible repairing the tea bowl by putting gold in between where the cracks are, filling the cracks with gold. And then they say that after it's it's been repaired and it's once again, you know, kind of in the shape of a cup, they revere it very more, very they revere it even more because it has revealed itself to be impermanent and therefore something very precious to uh, take care of. So this idea of repairing where it is broken and revering it for its vulnerability are two qualities that I find very moving in terms of that attitude of mind. We don't so much have that attitude towards things or people. When something breaks, we just want to toss it away and get something new or, you know, Old people—if they, you know, what good are they? Because they can't move so fast. And you know, we have this sort of attitude. It's pretty pervasive in our culture. We like the new things. We like young things. We don't like the things that have re- revealed their vulnerability. So compassion is also uh, very much a uh, practice of witnessing the vulnerable, the places in our lives where we are broken. Where we are not uh, in, in, invulnerable. Leonard Cohen has a song, There is a crack in everything, it's how the light gets in. There is a crack in everything, it's how the light gets in. So as we practice and you have been uh talking in groups about this as you've practiced you have seen more more up close and personal the the different kinds of um difficulties that you are uh experiencing perhaps physically or emotionally they begin to come to the surface. So what is needed in our response to this is not only the the acronym of rain the recognition the acceptance the investigation the non-identification in addition we also need this tender-heartedness towards ourselves this willingness to hold ourselves with loving awareness so i thought it might be interesting tonight maybe helpful to do a little guided practice in self-compassion. So if you would find a way to sit where you are comfortable, a little more comfortable than you are now, and where you can close your eyes. And I would just like to invite you right now to connect inside with any feelings of grief or fear or shame, worry, anything that has been bubbling up in you that could use a little bit of compassion. Allow the feeling to be present as best you can and feel where it is in your body. Just feel what are the sensations and breathe with it and recognize that this is this is what the buddha was talking about this is suffering and remember that this is a universal experience that everyone has a place or times when they don't feel so good where there's a sense of difficulty or struggle or vulnerability. And let yourself know that this is not your fault, that a difficult feeling is present. It is part of the repertoire of being human that we all at times have difficult feelings. And now I'm going to say some phrases of compassion that please receive them and apply them as best you can. May I touch this difficult feeling with kindness. May I hold this feeling with kindness. As a mother holds a child that is having a hard time, may I hold myself with this difficulty, with a kind, patient, compassion. And maybe find words that of your own care and concern, find words that speak to you. Another possibility is that you actually put one hand on your heart and one hand on your belly, or both hands on your heart, and just hold, hold yourself. Just feel your presence, the physical presence of your heart, your belly, the delicate vulnerability of a human body, the aliveness and the tenderness of a human body. And with your hands, perhaps say, it's okay, it's okay. Keep offering yourself kindness, care, compassion. Letting yourself receive as best you can the feeling of kindness towards yourself. And then slowly opening your eyes and coming back here. Getting a sense of how we can meet difficult feelings. So I would encourage you to keep exploring this in your own way, in your practice. Here's a from um, a sutra, an ancient sutra. You are stunned, powerless. You thought you knew what was going on. Now you realize you don't have a clue. You are stopped in your tracks. Everything within your skin is shaking Enter the trembling. Right here in the midst of commotion, get curious. Look around inside with wonder. All the walls have fallen down. Go ahead, dissolve. The one who has always been, who has seen much worse than this, is still here. The one who has always been, who has seen much worse than this, is still here. So compassion is really the opening of the heart. And sometimes it is in the suffering that the heart opens. Sometimes it is in different ways. Sometimes the heart opens in more ordinary ways. The beauty of nature, or the smile of a baby, or uh, the sight of an old friend. One time a woman here on retreat said her heart completely melted when she saw her husband in the dining room in a retreat, silent, they weren't talking, And he was resting his cheek on his hand and it just opened her heart. Who can explain it? So, little things also will bring forth this tenderness, will bring forth this response of the heart. Sometimes it's a crisis. Sometimes it's when things are very, very chaotic. Here's a story of a woman who was in a a very bad accident in uh, Laos. She was in the Laotian jungle on a bus, um, and the bus was uh, blindsided by another bus. So she says this, my left arm was shredded to the bone as it smashed through a window. My back, pelvis, tailbone, and ribs snapped immediately. My spleen was sliced in half, and my heart, stomach, and intestines were ripped out of place and pushed up into my shoulder. With my lungs collapsed and my diaphragm punctured, I could barely breathe. I was bleeding to death inside and out. And it would be more than 14 hours before I received real medical care. Because they're out in the middle of a jungle. So time goes by, no help is coming. So here's what she did She said, As a practicing Buddhist, I had been headed to a meditation retreat in India where I had planned to sit for three silent weeks. Instead, I lay crushed and bleeding at the side of the road. Struggling to draw in air, I imagine each breath to be my last. Breathing in, breathing out, consciously willing myself not to die. Along with my breath, pain became my anchor. As long as I could feel it, I knew I was alive. I thought back to the hours I had sat in meditation, fixated on the sensation of my leg falling asleep. That discomfort could hardly compare to the torment from my injuries. But I discovered that meditation could, meditating could still help me focus and remain alert, and I'm convinced it saved my life. I managed to calm myself, slowing my heart rate and the bleeding. I never lost consciousness or went into deep shock. In fact, I've never felt so aware, so clear-headed, and completely in the present moment. Then more time passes, and she says, uh, um, opening my eyes, I was surprised to see that darkness had fallen. That's when I became convinced I was going to die. As I closed my eyes and surrendered, an amazing thing happened. I let go of all fear. I was released from my body and its profound pain. I felt my heart open, free of attachment and longing. A perfect calm enveloped me, a bone-deep peace I could never have imagined. There was no need to be afraid. Everything in the universe was as, was exactly as it was meant to be. So there you are, this paradox of being in the scariest imaginable situation and what does she find? This open-hearted fearlessness, this understanding of her uh, connection to all life that could never be broken. So of course she has survived and she wrote this shortly after uh, some, let's see, four years later she had been She had recovered and was uh, doing a circumambulation of Mount Kailash in Tibet. So her story had a happy ending. So we have this opportunity on retreat to see the possibilities, the opportunities that await us by meeting ourselves with this kind of presence that we've been encouraging and meeting ourselves with this tender-hearted love and compassion. What we find if we've been talking a lot on the retreat about awareness and the attitude of mind, what we begin to sense is that the attitude of awareness is not so different from love itself that the attitude of awareness is what? Open, accepting, not rejecting what it finds, not having an opinion about you, not, you know, nothing. Non-judgmental, non-preferential. It is this, this awareness that begins to seem like love itself. And when we begin to see through the eyes of awareness the world actually appears in a different manner. We notice things we had previously overlooked. Another story um, there, a woman named Sister Chan Kong who is a teacher alongside of Thich Nhat Hanh. They've been teaching together for many years. And when they were in Vietnam during the war, they used to go into the villages to help the villagers uh, through recover from the bombings. And she's, st- I forgot to bring the actual story, but I'm just going to tell you as best I can. She, she talks about one village being bombed and they rebuilt, bombed, and rebuilt four times. The fourth time after the village was bombed, she felt really discouraged, really, really discouraged. But she said, I tried to do my practice as best as I could, tried to calm down, clear my mind, recover my resilience so I could help again to rebuild the village. And so she's in this state and looks down and sees this bright little flower growing up through the rubble of one of the destroyed buildings and she just fixates on this flower and the flower transmits to her this this quality of like complete hope and positive outlook on life you know like so she says to herself wow if this little flower could keep blooming during all this chaos why can't i do the same why can't i continue with this hopeful spirit. And so she does. And she says, you know, you don't need to see a whole field of flowers, beautiful flowers. You only need to see one tiny little flower. So as we practice, we do begin to see the world differently. We begin to see uh, with the eyes of loving-kindness, with the fact that the that the world is not only offering us challenges and suffering, but it's also offering us so much beauty and cause for celebration and for uh, opening our hearts in that way. Sometimes we call this grace when something comes to us from the world that is so inspiring and beautiful, Ramakrishna said, The winds of grace are blowing all the time. All we have to do is raise our sails. So, bringing in awareness is the raising of our sails to see what's actually true, what's actually here that we have perhaps not noticed. Here's something from the uh, Platform Sutra of the Sixth Zen Patriarch. I love these, these Buddhist teachings, you know, because some of these things we read are, were written like, you know, 800 years ago. But they are still as relevant to us as practitioners as they were when they were written. So here here's one. I'm, you know, the Sixth Zen Patriarch. I don't know exactly when he lived. But anyway, he says this, "'Good friends, my teaching of the Dharma "'takes awareness and kindness as its basis. "'Never say mistakenly that awareness and kindness are different. "'They are a unity, not two things. "'Awareness is the substance of kindness. "'Kindness is the function of awareness. "'At the very moment there is awareness, "'then kindness exists.'" Good friends, this means that meditation and kindness are the same. So this quality of awareness has within it, is imbued with this quality of kindness, of care, of love. So we are awakening this capacity in ourselves knowing that we are all in this together. And I think retreat is a wonderful metaphor for being in it all together. Because even though you haven't been talking to each other, do do you feel you kind of are getting to know each other? In unusual ways, you know, you, each other's preferences and little foibles, and maybe you, you were judging somebody three days ago, but now you think they're adorable, or maybe, you know, all these kind of little heartful things begin to happen between people. That's not the only thing that happens, but it is part of what happens. And so, there is this sense of, "Wow, we are supporting each other in our practice. We are doing this together. How many of you would have taken this time at home to sit and do two sessions of yoga a day? you know you know it just it just wouldn't happen, would it? But here we are together, so we are helping each other a great deal so one time, long, many years ago, when I was on one of my first very long retreats back in New England at Insight Meditation, and it was in the winter, very dark, you know, the sun would go down at 4 o'clock, it wouldn't come up again till I don't know, you know, 8 o'clock or something. Very dark, cold, kind of gloomy, you know, really. There were people practicing, I wasn't by myself, but it was pretty kind of gloomy. And then into this gloom one day an old friend came with, he had made cookies. He had made cookies for myself and some of his other friends. And he just, you know, gave us each a little basket of cookies with a note. And the note said, all beings cheer you on. All beings cheer you on. Ah. That gave such a lift to my practice. It was like, oh my God, I don't, now I'm remembering why I'm sitting here in this gloomy New England winter. And I still have that little note that he wrote because it meant so much to me. So I want to say to you as well, all beings cheer you on in this practice. Not so easy to do, but surely great benefit will come from your own practice and what you bring back into your own life. So just as a, a, a further little reminder, Thich Nhat Hanh wrote this, and this this will be the close. He said, You are me, and I am you. Isn't it obvious that we enter are? You cultivate the flower in yourself so that I will be beautiful. I transform the garbage in myself so that you will not have to suffer. I support you, you support me. I am in this world to offer you peace. You are in this world to bring me joy. And so it is how we practice together. So let's just, without changing your posture or anything, let's just close our eyes for a minute. Thank you for your kind attention. We have about 35 minutes for walking in the cool, lovely evening air before we come back at 9 for... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.